Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Monday. Awesome show planned for you today. Uh, it's going to be old school. Delano Squire, Shamika Michelle, Steve Kim, all joining me on today's show. Uh, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about uh, Sean King and what's going on with him. Before I do that, I want to uh, let me tell you guys about one of our great new sponsors, Cozy Earth. They've been around for a little bit, but still feel new to me. I've been using Cozy Earth. It helps me sleep better at night. You've heard bedding and approval brands say they're the softest and most comfortable. Uh, do they say that? Do they promise that? Do they deliver it? That's the question. Cozy Earth does. You get the softest, most luxurious feeling fabric guaranteed. That means if you don't love Cozy Earth's bamboo sheets, you have 100 days to get your money back. But they aren't worried about refunds because once you try Cozy Earth, you're hooked for life. Start with Cozy Earth's best-selling bamboo sheet set made with 100% premium viscose from bamboo. Super soft, ethically sourced sheets which regulate your temperature, keeping you cool in the summer and cozy in the winter. And it's just not sheets. Luxurate in Cozy Earth's pajamas, loungewear, bath towels, and much more. I've been sleeping on my Cozy Earth sheets for over a year now. Unbelievably soft unforgettably comfortable, the coziest way to make your home a sanctuary. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter the promo code FEARLESS at checkout for up to 40% off, all backed by a 100-night sleep guarantee. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code FEARLESS to save up to 40%. CozyEarth.com slash FEARLESS. All right, uh, with that, without further ado... Uh, let's get to uh, our fire starter for today. Let's get this party started. Sean King is a narrative Negro. He's not black, not even close. Check his birth certificate. Check his childhood pictures. As a child, he looked like Opie Taylor. As an adult, he looks like the white man listed on his birth certificate. But what we've learned in the past 20 years is that blackness isn't a skin color, it's a narrative. Narrative Negroes are people, regardless of skin color, who, divert, who devote their lives and public personas to advancing the narrative that American blacks are perpetual victims of white supremacy. Sean King, the Black Lives Matter activist, is the narrative Negro of the past decade. No one has been more committed to the cause of black victimhood than King, the white global elite asset who rose to national prominence standing on the coffins of Michael Brown and George Floyd. King's usefulness to the cause may be coming to an end, however. It appears his puppet masters might be done with him. His support of Palestinians and Hamas in their conflict with Israel has seemingly put him at odds with the very people responsible for his past fraudulence, misdeeds, and ascension. Over the weekend, 
King took credit for playing a role in the release of an American Jewish hostage, 17-year-old Natalie Ranon. Ranon's family released a statement denying any contact or relationship with King, writing, quote, our family does not and did not have anything to do with him, neither directly nor indirectly, not to him and not to anything he claims to represent. In response, Sean King posted screenshots of directed messages between himself and Ranan's brother. Sean King is Frankenstein. He's a narrative Negro monster who now fashions himself as an international diplomat and activist. His job is to advance the narrative that black Americans are victims, not to involve himself in disputes between Israeli Jews and Arabs. King is done as a social media influencer. For the past 72 hours, he's been the subject of Twitter and Instagram memes trashing his reputation. It's now perfectly acceptable to point out that King's public persona is fraudulent. This is the inevitable fate of all narrative Negroes. They're discarded the moment they're no longer useful or foolishly deviate from the script they were handed. The exact same thing happened to Colin Kaepernick last month. A letter he wrote begging the New York Jets for a job magically became public. The letter exposed the fraudulence of Kaepernick's contention that the NFL is a slave plantation. Seven years after Kaepernick took a knee, black people are now no longer required to pretend the former 49ers quarterback is the second coming of Muhammad Ali. He's just another narrative Negro. No one has ever known who Kaepernick's father is. He was adopted and raised by a lovely white family. His biological mother was white. Kaepernick's blackness was contingent on his ability to paint black people as victims. Narrative Negroness is the ultimate cosplay for identity-confused mixed-raced Americans. It's lucrative and reputation-enhancing. Bubba Wallace juiced his NASCAR career by advancing the narrative. Remember he faked that noose? Nicole Hannah-Jones, AKA Homegirl the Clown, won a Pulitzer Prize crafting the narrative with her 1619 project. Barack Obama, he won the White House. Jussie Smollett is one of the few African-Americans to bungle being a narrative Negro. His staged racial assault went too far. It was too far-fetched. Smollett should have followed the, the lead of LeBron James. Yes, LeBron James is a narrative Negro. Remember, blackness isn't a skin color, it's a narrative. To qualify for authentic or unapologetic blackness, you must advance the narrative of perpetual black oppression. That's why LeBron James claimed unidentified white vandals painted the N-word on the gate of his Brentwood mansion. That's why Deion Sanders won his first game in Colorado and immediately claimed that his black skin threatened the white college football establishment. Surviving white oppression is a rite of passage to qualify as black in America. That's why virtually all black men pretend one of the most defining moments in their life was some sort of exaggerated negative encounter with a white police officer. The blackest experience in America is a negative engagement with white people. 
We cherish, remember, recount, and prioritize those moments above all others. It allows us to advance the narrative that our entire American experience is dependent on the kindness, affirmation, and love of white people. Narrative Blackness is the number one movie airing in America. We're all actors in that movie. We allow Sean King to wear blackface because he's such a talented actor. We erected statues and memorials to honor actor George Floyd. We pretend that had Floyd not overdosed on fentanyl, he would have been welcome at all of our Thanksgiving tables next month. We don't complain that black lesbians embezzled millions of dollars during the Black Lives Matter pandemic because it advanced the narrative. We're good with mushmouth lawyer Ben Crump earning millions of dollars profiting off the death of resisting criminals. The narrative of black victimization has superseded the story of Jesus Christ, the story of eternal victory through sacrifice. We'd rather be narrative Negroes than followers of Christ. The pursuit of unapologetic blackness is a mental illness that distorts truth, promotes delusion, and most embarrassingly, makes the pursuer susceptible to exploitation and emotional manipulation. Worse, it obstructs the pursuit of God and an understanding of his worldview. That's my fire starter. Sean King, Black Lives Matter, narrative Negroness, this whole deal that black people, that our identities are contingent on do we help sell the story that our entire life is dependent on white people and that it's all defined by negative engagements with white people? If you help advance that narrative, you're black. If you don't, you're not black. Jason Whitlock, you're a sellout. Everybody that doesn't believe that we're victims of constant white supremacy oppression. You're all sellouts. You're not really black. You're the black face of white supremacy, actually. Everybody is auditioning for a role to be a narrative Negro, even white people like Sean King. All right, when we come back, uh, we'll bring in Delano Squires, get his take, and then we'll hear from uh, Shamika Michelle. Uh, Lionel Squires be right back with us on the other side of this. Uh, make sure that uh, you guys tune in on no November 2nd for our Fearless Cookout, Gold Jacket Edition. We'll be joined by NFL Hall of Famers Brett Favre, Warren Sapp, Marshall Falk, and Brian Erlacher. If you go to uh, uh, our website or go to my Twitter feed, I think we can tell you how you can still buy tickets to this event if you want to be here live for the taping. That's on November 2nd, Thursday, November 2nd. Show's going to air at 6 p.m. We'll tape uh, starting around noon. Let us know if you want to be there. We can sell you a ticket. You get to meet these guys. You get to hang out with us. You get to eat some barbecue. Toronto Squires, next. my obligation or hate discrimination Raising up your hands for freedom. Peewee Football Coaching, previously on Fearless. But this whole thing 
is built around Shador, his son. This is a peewee football coach doing everything to pad the stats of his son, doing everything to try to get his son in the Heisman race and at the top of the NFL draft board. And there's no one Dion is unwilling to exploit to make that happen, starting with Travis Hunter. Are you watching what's going on with Travis Hunter? Guy misses three games with a lacerated kidney, comes back against Stanford and plays like nearly 140 snaps or something, something crazy, played him both ways. And then in the second half, particularly in the fourth quarter, the dude was so gassed, he got ate up as a defensive back. Why is this man playing 140 snaps? Coming off an injury, or really at any time. Why is he doing that? Because he needs a wide receiver that's good at yak to pad Shadour's stats. Welcome back. Uh, let me tell you guys about Samaritan Ministries. Tired of someone else telling you where to go when you have a medical need? Are you ready to take control of your health care? Samaritan Ministries could be the solution you're looking for. They connect hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation who come together through prayer, encouragement, and financial support when a medical need arises. It's not insurance, and you're not limited by restrictive networks. Say you have a medical need. You don't have to check and see what hospital is in your network or be concerned about the doctor being in network too. No, you go to the hospital, you choose, and don't give a second thought as to what's in network and what's not. Because with Samaritan Ministries, you're in control of your health care. Afterwards, fellow members pray for you and send money directly to you to help you pay your medical bills. And when they have a medical need, you'll do the same for them. That's what biblical health care sharing looks like. Check it out today at SamaritanMinistries.org slash fearless. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's bring in Delano Squires. Delano Squires. Let's roll out to Washington, D.C. I actually told Delano probably two weeks ago, hey, man, I got this thought I want to do, this Mono, I want to do on narrative Negroes. And then Israel Hamas broke out and other events happened. And, and so it took me a little longer to get here, Delano. But this is a conversation I've been wanting to have with you uh, for about two weeks. Delano, mm -hmm. welcome back to the show. Uh, I, I, I look at what's going on with Sean King and how he's being exposed once again. And it feels like we're finally done with Sean King. His handlers, mm. I think, are finally <laughs> done with him. But I look back and go, how did this white dude get away with passing himself off as black for more than two decades, build this incredible social media following? And it, it, it's only because blackness is no, it's not a skin color. It's about mm. advancing a particular narrative about black people, that's whether that determines whether you get to be a black person in good standing. Do you sell the narrative that we're victims? 
Yeah, absolutely, Jason. And I mean, as you said in your, your column, right, Martin Luther Cream is at the king of the top of the hill when it comes to this type of thing. Um, because Sean King has been at this for a while. And, and interestingly enough, before he dedicated himself full time to activism, I first heard of Sean Kim King when he was still a pastor. Now, I don't know anything about his church, but I remember at a particular time when where he used to be a pastor uh, and then he pivoted um, into doing like this type of work. And and as you said, the, the, the stuff with the, the hostage release, I mean, those are pretty big claims to make if you if you didn't actually have anything to do with securing, um, you know, the, that person's freedom. But I, I'll tell you when the light sort of turned on fully and finally for me with Sean King. It's when um, a little girl named Jasmine Barnes was shot and killed tragically in a Walmart parking lot in Houston um, about four years ago. I want to say it was, it was 2019. And at first, the police said they were looking for a middle-aged white man. And Sean King got online. Uh, Lee Merritt, who's like Ben Crump's little brother, right? He's an attorney in the Crump mold. Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, and a number of other people, including Sheila Jackson Lee, who represents that area, were saying this was a hate crime. And this little girl, who was eight, I think, at the time, was killed because of racism. And Sean King put out a photo of a guy who he said the police were looking for. It turned out it was two black men who were charged, uh, arrested and charged for this crime, a capital crime. And I believe they were convicted of this little girl's murder. The white man that Sean King accused of shooting this child ended up killing himself seven months later. And all of the people who commented on it publicly, including Gabrielle Union, I forgot to mention her, completely moved away from the story. Nobody even followed up and said, oh, this crime was committed by X, Y, and Z. Because to your point, it's always about the narrative. And the narrative is that black people in this country are always and forever victims of white supremacy, white terrorism, and white racism. And anybody who will um, promote that, adhere to that, sell that, as you said, can be a Negro in good standing. And anybody who questions that, even with hard evidence, should be prepared to be criticized for doing the, the work of white supremacy. I've admitted this before on this show, but just as a reminder, when Sean King first got on my radar, it, was, it wasn't when he was the Facebook pa uh, pastor. That's what they were calling him when he had his courageous church. He, he recruited over Facebook and they called him the Facebook pastor. Uh, it wasn't until 2014 when, to me, it felt like, man, this dude's got great information on this Michael Brown situation. And mm. all of it supported the narrative that Darren Wilson had wrongly killed Michael Brown. I was like, man, he's connected to somebody. And I fell for it. And I, I'll never forget it. My American Express bill will never forget I gave money to Sean King and whatever he was uh, organizing in support of Michael Brown and his family yeah. and mother. I think his mother was trying to get overseas or whatever. I, I, I fell for it. And, and then I, I can't remember what it was, but people started reporting about, no, here's his birth certificate. Here's a picture of him as a little kid. Here's a picture of the, the guy on his birth certificate that is his father. 
And that's when I was like, holy cow, I've I've been duped here. And 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 obviously, eventually the truth came out about Michael Brown and all that. And it really opened my and then Delano, I, I almost forgot. And then I met Sean King. This I was working for ESPN and interviewed Sean King potentially for a job at the Undefeated. And he told such a remarkable, unbelievable story about his personal narrative that I had reporters like, hey, we got to go check this out. Mm. Or, and, and we couldn't confirm any of it. And, and I was like, oh, that's when I wa officially washed my hands of Sean King and he became a fraud. But it, it, it's our desire to promote this narrative makes us very easily duped. Yes. Uh, there's many of us that want to believe it's a big part of our identity to believe, oh, we're going through the same oppression as my great grandmama. And, and that's highly important to us, but it makes us easy to dupe. And there's just this long string of people. It's not just Sean King, it's DeRay McKesson, it's Patrice Cullors, it's the lesbians that started Black Lives Matter. We can be easily duped because of this, and we got to snap out of it. Absolutely, Jason. Now, I will say one thing. Um, paternity can be a tricky issue. And there's a reason why there's a, there's a saying, mama's baby, daddy's maybe, right? Because even within the last couple of months, both Kirk Franklin and Kerry Washington have found out that the per people that they believe to be their biological father actually are not. Kirk Franklin did a whole 35 minute documentary called Father's Day on finding his actual dad when the person who died a few years ago, who he thought was his dad, was revealed not to be his father. Um, and Kerry Washington's mom alleges that, because Kerry Washington's older than I am, sometime in the mid 70s, she did, um, you know, uh, she got a sperm bank donation and that's how Kerry Washington was conceived. Right. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm only saying that to say I, I don't I don't necessarily get into Sean King's sort of racial identity because pinning that down would be to me be be uh, would require more information than I have at my disposal. Now, you as a journalist might have already done that work and I just need to go and check it. But Sean King does look like a cross between T.I., the rapper and John B., the R&B singer. And and there have been black folk passing for white for uh for a, a fairly long time, and I've seen people- Hold for one second, Delano, hold uh -huh. for one second, hold for- Uh-huh. Put the baby picture of Sean King up, and, <laughs> and show me the T.I. Put, put the baby picture of Sean King up. Show me the T.I. in this picture. No, no, not, we not, got a not single shot. No, I- We got I've a single shot of him. of him in the right- No, no, I've seen pictures of him, like as a teenager. Where he's had he had the low cut, and I said and I, I said to somebody, I said he's gonna look like Ti to me. Um, but but all I'm saying is, r racial identity is a very tricky thing. Jason, I'm I'm gonna use personal experience, right? Person, I'm gonna speak personal yep. for a second. Um, my mom is the youngest of ten siblings, and that my, picture. Hold, yeah. that's Ti. Hold on for a second. That's Ti. No, no, no. I'm thinking of a different picture that I've seen of him. Not that one. Oh. If I find it, I'll send it to you. But 
That looks like uh, my, a white boy Johnny that used to live next door to me, but go ahead. <laughs> but my my uh, oldest aunt, who's, who's since passed away, um, her, her, I think her first husband was of European descent. I'm not sure, Hungarian. He might be Hungarian or something to that effect. So I, I have, you know, a number of cousins who are, for lack of a better term, mixed race, right? One of their, one of their children has a white mom. So, so my cousin who's mixed had a child with a white woman. And that child has 0% sort of visible characteristics of, of someone of African descent, even though their, their grandmother is full, fully black, however you want to phrase it. So what I'm saying is it doesn't really take a lot to sort of erase uh, discernible African descent. All that to me is to the side, because to your point, Sean King, Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, Nicole Hannah-Jones, a lot of these people um, sort of root their blackness in a, in a narrative of oppression and victimization. And yes, this does sell quite well. Um, and, and this is why, and, and this is the point you were making Im- immediately before I started speaking, this is why it's so easy to uh, dupe large numbers of people in this country, particularly black folk, because if it sounds like racial oppression, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that definitely happened. Justice Smollett definitely got uh, assaulted by two white guys at two in the morning um, in 10 degree weather in Chicago, who happened to be walking outside his apartment when he was going out looking for a footlong sandwich at, at Subway. And yeah, this this sounds definitely like, you know, like like this plausible that Chicago is MAGA country or the Bubba Wallace stuff, or the Rachel Richardson stuff, the, the, the young lady, the Duke volleyball player. Volleyball player at Duke. That they call her the N-word for basically two hours straight, and nobody heard it, didn't get picked up on the audio, and ESPN, she was on outside the lines. Stephen A. Smith talked about her for two or three days. They, they was on the verge of tears, and it was all a fake story. So, so yes, I, I do believe um, that people use that uh, against us. And I, I will say this, and I haven't been on, you know, since the, the sort of Israel Hamas stuff started to, to really hit the news. But my sense from listening to some of your commentary is that part of the reason that you were skeptical and questioning, let me, I want to use the right words and correct me if I'm wrong. Some of the, the right. things, okay, some of the things that are coming out from that part of the world is because you've seen time and time and again how people have gotten burned on issues that happen in our own backyard, in places that we know, among people that we know of and are familiar with, in a language that we speak. And every time we see one of these videos or hear one of these stories, and the narrative is one thing, you let a little bit of time pass, you let evidence actually come out, and then it's like, oh wow, this actually did not happen the way it said it did. And the the latest is, is with the guy who got killed during a traffic stop who Ben Crump is saying is a victim. And it's like, no, let's let's hold our powder. Let's let all the evidence come out. Let's let's see where this thing goes. And then we can, you know, give a final pronouncement once everything is known. Um, And that's what I gather from some of your commentary. And that's why when it comes to matters of race in this country, if I hear CNN and MSNBC and all the usual suspects saying one thing, my, my default reaction is to say, all right, I'm just going to let it cook for a little bit. 
I'm gonna hold my cards. I'm not gonna say anything. And then I'll see how it bakes out and how it comes out in a week or two. And I'd say in the last six years, at least 80% of the, of the, the big racial items that got national attention turned out not being at all what they were um, described as being when they first hit the scene, hit the news cycle. I did not plan to zero in on this with you, but I'm going to now because I think it's appropriate and it's in the news cycle. Over the weekend or Friday, I can't remember, uh, reporting came out that has made a lot of people on social media say, Look, it's clear as day, George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose. There are no signs that he was killed by Derek Chauvin. And, and I, you know, just being honest, that's where I've been on this the entire time. And mm. it, it, it's why, you know, I called him St. George Floyd. And, and it's, it's why I've always been very skeptical of the people that are, going through convulsions, oh, George Floyd died. When I know for a fact, if, if they saw George Floyd walking down the street, they'd cross the street, they'd clutch their purse, they'd mm-hmm. rustle to their car, they, 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 you know, cut it out. And, and I'm talking about black people and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and white people in particular as well. But because George Floyd advanced that narrative of black oppression, He's been guided up, statues built, memorials built, Juneteenth holiday, anointed a national <laughs> holiday. It's, it's unbelievable mm. how he, he, the last eight minutes of his life changed the entire narrative about the other 46 years of his life, or however long it was. It, 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 so I, I just... My specific question is, what do you think about the reporting and the people that are saying, like, uh, Derek Chauvin should be released from prison, uh, George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose? Uh, that's a good question. And I, obviously, people knew that he <laughs> had fentanyl in his, in his system, you know, at the time that he died. My, my, the thing I always ask myself is, if Derek Chauvin had not knelt um, on George Floyd, whether you want to characterize it as on his back, his shoulder, on his neck. If that had not happened for eight minutes, would George Floyd otherwise have been alive? My, my inclination tends to be yes. Now, he may be alive. He, he would have survived that, that particular encounter. Um, now, he may have died after that. I, I don't know, because he, he apparently had a, a fair amount of drugs in his system. But Jason, I don't, I don't know if you've ever... Um, and, and, and let me say it this way. I think about this often, like when I watch sports, sometimes when I see a bunch of people dogpile onto somebody after winning home run or touchdown, I always ask myself, what is the person on the bottom of the pile feeling? Because even sometimes if, if you're rustling, sometimes even with my kids or certainly with, with my peers, and somebody's on your back <coughs> and you don't, you don't have the ability to breathe in properly, you, you start to panic. Right. And this is like, no, get off of me because I, I want to breathe. Now, imagine you're hopped up on drugs and that starts to happen. Right. So it's possible that Derek Chauvin did not compress his airways. But just the fact of kneeling on his back um, sent George Floyd into a sense of panic that ultimately led to his death. Now, whether he should be released or whether he should have been charged with a lesser crime, 
the second degree murder is is a is a legal question that I'm not really qualified to answer. Um, I've always been of the position that the narrative around Chauvin and Floyd obviously was cooked up um, in, in many respects because part of that narrative is that that this was a racially motivated killing. And Keith Ellison, who's the attorney general for the state of Minnesota, said, now this is after Chauvin had been convicted, that they had no evidence that race played a factor in Chauvin's actions. So, and, and, and this didn't just change the course of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin's lives, obviously, which it did. This has changed the course of American and, and in fact, global history. Because you have people in Hamas saying, you know, we're looking to America and what happened during the George Floyd protests to sort of inform our movement. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, there've been a lot of shenanigans when it comes to these, you know, race related um, officer involved incidents. And I think people need to be a lot more skeptical, ask a lot more questions, sort of hold their opinions until, you know, all the evidence is out and stop allowing people to inflame our passions and our emotions for things that ultimately end up not being true. And for me, on the George Floyd piece, you, you talked about how, you know, black folk and white folk who got duped. For me, one of the worst pieces of this entire thing, and I've said this on the show before, is how th- his death went from being about police reform to quickly um, getting Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's off of cereal and rice, uh, corporate board divor- diversity, and to me, really the most disgusting of them all is when USA Today put out the tweet a year later and said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, after George Floyd was killed, a bunch of companies, you know, promised to diversify their ranks. And a year later, those things haven't happened. And the people who've lost out most are black women. So it's, again, women who would have crossed the street and would have never dealt with George Floyd in life are now saying, well, George Floyd died on the streets of Minneapolis, so I deserve a corner office in the C-suite. And I think that, to me, is the height of culture vulturism, if I've ever seen it. It's and a black man dies, but uh, educated black women should benefit the most. And it's a tragedy exactly. that it, it hasn't happened. It, it's it's an unbelievable statement. I, I do want to enter this into the record for those of you new to the show, don't know much about me. Uh, whoever you maybe be, or maybe you just missed it, but uh, my cousin Anton Butler was killed by law enforcement in 2012. Uh, Their contention is that uh, he swallowed cocaine and that's why he died. He was tasered in the rain. Me and my family have a different narrative. Uh, I don't say this with any type of uh, bragging. I'm just keeping the facts entered into the record so you know who's talking. Uh, I paid for his funeral. I helped raise him. I loved him. I shed real tears. I look at his picture every day. It sits in the middle of my living room. So I'm I'm not someone speculating about the pain of losing a loved one uh, in some kind of officer-involved incident. I I know many of you and I don't want to question your motives, but everybody acts like they can relate and everybody acts like they know what they spent. Mm. But most of you are cosplaying. It's a role you play. Been through it. Family members have been through it. Family, his mama still dealing with that pain. Uh, so I just wanted to 
enter that into the record before everybody disqualifies my opinion and blah, blah, blah. But I've done, I helped raise Anton. Loved him. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so I just want to enter that into the record. And then I'm going to say what I think about George Floyd is that uh, I think that at best or at worst, best, worst, I don't know how, you know, Derek Chauvin, uh, maybe contributed to some sort of accidental manslaughter. Uh, this man being thrown away in prison uh, mm. on second-degree murder charges is a joke and an injustice. Uh, I tend to think George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose based on the science. You ever trust them? Remember the old trust the science deal? Mm. Uh, the guy had enough fentanyl in him uh, <laughs> to kill two or three people. And... and uh, Derek Chauvin at 165 pounds. This was not a large man. Don't think he caused George Floyd a, a great deal of discomfort. George Floyd was talking and begging and saying he couldn't breathe long before a knee ever uh, touched his neck or back. Uh, it, it's an injustice. And it's, it's George Floyd died in service to the narrative. And mm. the narrative is most important. And that's like, we are being used to advance a narrative that we think serves us, but it really doesn't. It, it, it just really does. And I'm talking, and particularly when I say the we, I'm mostly talking about black men. Because mm. as USA Today, USA Today pointed out, as Delano, this has nothing to do with black men. Black women didn't get all that they wanted out of the death of George Floyd, and USA Today complained about it. None of this stuff they're talking about. And there are no programs. There's no, the National Football League and all their black players and what they got a hundred million. You'll never hear them talk about, well, we set up this program for young black boys to teach them how to be better men. But you'll hear plenty of advertising about what mm -hmm. needs to be done for black women. Plenty, mm -hmm. all kinds of programs. But the people that actually are performing the worst and need the most help are black boys. But it's never discussed. Ever. It's yeah. an afterthought. We've been given up on. We're just a tool to advance a narrative that doesn't service us. And, and <clears throat> so I, I'm going to, and I don't know, I, I, I think we may have talked about Deion Sanders at one point, but that was another point I threw in there in, in this piece that give me an opportunity to hear your thoughts on Deion Sanders. It, it, it's like this narrative is so strong that I look at Someone like a LeBron James who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, well, let me say I got my back gate painted with the N-word so that I can advance the narrative. Deion Sanders gets a cushy job in Colorado for millions of dollars. He's had a lot of success. Wins his first game and has to run into the press conference and say, I threaten the white establishment. Now, I know... The last, of the last five coaches at Colorado, four of them have been black, including me, but it's my blackness that's a threat mm. to the whole college establishment. This pull to, to play this game is felt most strongly, in my belief, by elite blacks who have a guilty conscience about mm. the success they have, and they mm. think the, the number one thing they can do is advance the narrative 
that, hey, I know I'm successful, but the reason you're not is because of white oppression. Yeah, I mean, the 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 BLM that actually hovers in the background is actually Boulay Lives Matter. Because to your point, it's 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 the black elites who use the oppression narrative to signal that, hey, we're not that much further from you know, we're not we're only one or two steps removed away from you guys on the streets right and, and and this is what i talk about when i use the term afristocracy and i talk about the progressive you know politicians pundits professors preachers and performers they are very much different than the quote-unquote talented tenth right because black folks of yesteryear and I, and I and i say this because i've read their writings felt a certain obligation to the less fortunate and that's why much of what they talked about was um, addressing the behavior of those individuals. So they preach temperance, they preach modesty, they preach uh, thrift and industriousness. They said, basically, you got to clean your life up and get your act together if you want to be accepted in polite society. And somewhere around the mid 60s, the black scholars and intellectuals said, no, that's capitulating to white society and white norms. Really, what we want to do is to act any way we wanna act and demand that white people accept us. And this is why what the aristocracy does is to say they use the pain um, or, or, or trauma or oppression or whatever term you wanna use of the black lower class to extract benefits upwards and say, because of what George Floyd went through on the street of Minneapolis, that's why you should let my daughter attend Harvard Law School because of racial inequities in this, the housing market. Now these people, some are Martha's Vineyard, by the way, right? Where they wave to the Obamas as they walk, as they go by. But what they do, they use the difficulties of life in the black inner city to extract benefits for themselves. And that's why I say about BLM, you know, Patrice Cullors and, and, and Alicia Garza specifically, they are only interested in black men for three reasons. Their vote for the political power, their seed for procreation, because as hard as it, as it is to believe, Patrice Cullors actually does have a son by a man, a son that she birthed, a child that she birthed. And then their corpses to fuel their activism. This is why they don't, they don't talk about black men as husbands or as fathers. Black men are only good when they're dead. And, and quiet as this kept, the Democratic Party has, has attached itself to that narrative. And that's why when it comes to black women, Joe Biden says we've appointed more, you know, black women to federal judgeships than any other administration. And we've I got a black VP. I got a, I put the black first black woman on the Supreme Court. But when I search his timeline to talk about black men, it's always this person was a victim of police brutality. This person was a victim of oppression because that they black men and particularly dead black men are the raw material that feeds the equity industrial complex. And that's what they need to keep going. Um, so yeah, this you can see how all of this plays out. And Jason, I'll say this, it's not just race, because at some point, if you ever wanna you know, look into Matthew Shepard and the circumstances of his death, and you may know them already, the, the young man who, the narrative is that he was killed and beaten to death by two guys in a field um, and left for dead because he was gay. Now, what I started to hear more recently is that the person who killed Matthew Shepard I believe, and, and I'll double check, and I should have double checked first, but was another 
was it was like a, a lover's quarrel or something to that effect. It wasn't a, a gay related hate crime. And that's and Shepard's law, I think, came into being um, around, you know, anti LGBT hate crime. So it's whoever can sell the narrative of their oppression. And even if they have to twist facts and outright lie to do that, um, all of those things are used in in service of the greater narrative um, and and goal of deconstruction, dismantling society, uh, changing social norms, and to say, no, the people who were on bottom, now we're on top. So we're gonna upend all of society. So yeah, this is why you have to be discerning. Um, And people, anybody who survived Kaepernick, COVID, BLM, and when I say COVID, I'm talking about the the, sort of the, the jab movement. Anybody who survived those narratives is the type of person that you can uh, do business with and, and rock with because that's a person that has a strong character and is discerning. But anybody who folded and said, oh, no, I'm for Colin Kaepernick, I'm for BLM, and not even knowing what these people stand for, or people like uh, uh, Stephen A. Smith, who I know he's been on your radar, you've been on his radar, and Mike Wilbon, who was saying that because Kyrie Irving didn't want to jam a needle in his arm, that he was a bad teammate, and why doesn't he just do what he's being told by the NBA? These are people you got to be skeptical about because these are people who have no knowledge, no wisdom and no discernment. I was just and we got to be quick, but help me remember, isn't there some lie that played a critical role in Roe v. Wade? Didn't the woman that they cast as this, didn't they say she was raped by a black man or so? I can't remember. They told some amazing lie about the Roe v. Wade woman. To help them, I, I think it had to do with rape, abortion. Yeah, I think it had to do with yeah. rape. Um, I believe so, but yeah, they 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 used a person who they felt was a right fit for the narrative. But but to be fair, all movements do this. Anybody who knows has even a sort of cursory knowledge of history understands that Rosa Parks was not the first black woman who refused to give up a seat. I think the woman who came before her was a a, a teenage pregnant woman, pregnant or girl. Mm-hmm. And the NAACP said, she's not the right victim. So let's go with somebody who is older, who's more established, who's more religious. But again, see, see the difference. The NAACP knew how to choose its horses back then. They, they chose people who would be sympathetic victims. Now, what Ben Crump does is they say, no, give me, give me the guy who the, the, the dirtiest, with the worst background, and I'm going to make people accept him as the new victim. And that's what he's doing even with the new guy, I think Leonard Cure or whatever his I name think, is. I think that's because there's a shortage of victims mm-hmm. who don't <laughs> fit the George Floyd. You have, again, it's like the, the, the guy Ben Crump is defending now or, out, you know, out panhandling with right now. This guy is strangling the cop and saying, mm-hmm. yeah, bitch. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like, do, do, I mean, you know what lynch you gotta go to to get killed by cops at, at this point? And, and to be a victim, it, it's, it's anyway, Delano, I gotta go. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Jason. Great job as always. Uh, we will, uh, guys, I wanna tell you guys about uh, what's going on here with the blaze. We've all seen how big tech sensors people from uh, demonetizing 
and suspending accounts to throttling content deemed misinformation by so-called fact checkers. The scale of the problem is far worse than you might think. This is a constant threat we battle every single day here at The Blaze. After we reported on the Hunter Biden laptop story, NewsGuard labeled us as super spreaders of misinformation over a story that turned out to be 1,000% true. That's how big tech and our ruling elites do it. They decide they want to suppress the story and they use all sorts of tactics and they leverage all the players in big tech to crush that story. Blaze Media is being demonetized over and over. We've been willing to take a financial hit because these are stories you need to know. But here's the problem. Every time a story is demonetized or labeled misinformation, it gets suppressed and never reaches you through your search engines or social media feeds. We're sick of playing this game and we have some big plans to fight back that we'll be announcing very soon. As always, we couldn't do any of this without you. We'll let you know how you can continue to play a pivotal role. Stay tuned. We'll be sharing the details tomorrow, Tuesday, October 24th, right here on Blaze TV and on all of our other outlets and networks. Uh, get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Tamika Michelle, Shamok Show. Next. Brent Favre, previously on Fearless. The strategic part of it is taken away. And what I mean by that is defensive coordinators, I, I heard it so many times, make it be known that you're close or you're going, you're going to be close. Bumping, hitting. Um, I, the defense coordinators that I played with never said break his leg or clotheslining or anything like that. But you wanted to make you wanted to make him un uncomfortable. And if you had a chance to sack him, you wanted to de-cleat him within the confines of the game. And you want the 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 making him uncomfortable part of the game is is gone. Um, so I'm, I'm sure offense coordinators and certainly quarterback coaches are saying, look, they can't hit you. They can't hit you. So stand in there, have, have some patience, have calm down, relax. And, and that's true because they can hit you. I wanted a lady's take, a woman's take, on my uh, narrative Negroes uh, mono and fire starter. Uh, Shamika Michelle, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, you look awesome today. Love your hair today. Uh, I'll probably get in trouble for that. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> on a serious note, uh, on a serious note, what do you think about what's going on with Sean King? Do we think that finally his puppet masters are done with him and this will be the last time he'll be in the news cycle? Have, have we finally buried Sean King, Talcum X? 
Listen, I hope so. And I heard Delano say that he reminded him of T.I. And I was thinking, well, what does the T.I. stand for? Must be uh, tan invisible or tan imaginary. (laughs) Because, you know, I have just always thought he was a fraud. I never really get into any person that I consider light, bright and almost white, acting as if life has been so hard that they just need to get on the front lines. So it never really mattered to me whether Sean King was light skinned black or if he was actually white. I just never really took to him. So I am hoping that this is the end of him. Throw the dirt over him. He's already dead to me anyway. Hope for it. (laughs) And I'm glad we pulled up this picture of Tia. You're not someone, do you, I'm 100% convinced Sean King is white. Are you not 100% convinced of that? I think I just never really cared. I do not like this man at all. And so when people say he's white, I can see that. You look at his, you know, baby pictures, his hair is very straight and silky. He looks white to me. And he seems to always keep his hair cut in that buzz cut so that you can't see how silky it is. I suspect it would not be like Colin Kaepernick Colin has a little bit more curl, you know, but he sits and he teases it and he probably blow dries it and rat tooth comb it to death to to give it that afro. I don't think Sean's hair would even do that, but I am so sick of him. And when you say this Negro narrative, he is the perfect example of this. And I'm honestly sick of all of these people whether they are really black, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is mixed, or white. You have to push this narrative for black people to like you. If you're a black person, you have to constantly be a victim and just think you can't succeed. If you're a white person, you have to act as if black people are ignorant and stupid and can't do anything right. If you say anything that's near or even seen as pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you are demonized. And I think people, especially black people, are happy with having the excuse that I can't do anything because I'm black. And it's really starting to get on my nerves. I just had this conversation like twice within the last three or four days that black people constantly want to say, I can't because of the white man. Black men will actually look in the other direction when they see someone get in trouble and say, uh, it's because he's black. Are we going to overlook the fact that he even came into contact with the police because he was actually breaking the law? Like we say this all the time and I'm so sick of it. Can you imagine the depression, Jason, that has to come along with waking up every morning, no matter what good has happened to you, no matter how great you feel, you have to come to the conclusion that you can't accomplish anything because of the color of your skin. There is no religion or no type of spirituality that pushes the hopelessness that a lot of these Negro narrative players push. That 
we talk about mental health, that has to be a continuous cycle of depression to think I could get out of this, but I can't because I'm black. I could do something with my life, but I can't because I'm black. You're going to constantly have mental health issues if that's the way that you think. I'm so sick of it. I'm like at my wits end with black people thinking that black has to equal degeneracy. I'm running out of patience. I, I do. I'm going to get to your point, but I, I, I do want people in the comments right now to weigh in. I, I'm blown away that Shamika and Delano are not as convinced of Sean, White, Sean King's whiteness as I am. Could you all hop in the comments and make a ruling on this? How many of you side with me that are 100% sure Sean King is white? How many people are like, well, I don't know. Uh, hop in the comments and tell me that. If you're listening on Apple, when you're giving me that five-star review, uh, comment on Sean King's deal. Now, to, to, to your other, to the rest of your point about you know, being tired of this narrative and just, I, I just, particularly for people that claim a religious faith and a particularly a Christian faith, I, I, it, it's never made sense to me. If God is on my side, how can I fail? None of that means anything because it's like, if white people don't love me, how can I succeed? Is, is really our mentality and, and mindset and, and lit anybody that makes the mistake, uh, as you pointed out and I pointed out, that makes the mistake of saying like, nah, man, uh, it's really not that way. You control your destiny, particularly here in America. There's no other place on the planet more opportunity rich for black people than here in America. You point that out and oh my God, you're a sellout. It's it, it, it's it's one of those deals where I, I'm, and I think you you've said, but but it's like I, I reject. I, I, I'm I I, I re, my skin color is so unimportant to me at this point. It's never been less important to me than at any point in my life than right now, and it's because everybody else is trying to make it the most important thing is why I, it's just like, it's unimportant to me at, at all. It's, it's not what I have to offer the world. I don't, I certainly don't have any shame over it, but I, I don't even have, I don't have pride in it. This whole black pride movement, it, 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 it leads you astray. It makes you accept falsehoods and fraudulent people like a Sean King, like a DeRay McKesson, like a Patrice Colors, all out of loyalty to a narrative that just isn't true. I, 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 I just, I'm at a loss to understand, particularly for black people that have had success, and I, I guess I'm not at a loss. I just think they do it because they feel guilty about being successful. And, and they want to convince poor black people like, yeah, I know I'm successful. Yeah, I'm, I know I moved out to an all white neighborhood. Yeah, I know I talk proper English. Yeah, I know uh, <laughs> that I send my kids to a white school, but I'm still with y'all. 
white people are the devil. That <laughs> you know, it's cheap, I, I don't. Man. I don't know if I don't take any pride in my skin color simply because I put on tanning lotion in the summer and lay out in the sun to get darker. Like that chocolatey, smooth uh, color that I get in the summer, I just, I love it. My skin looks even. I feel like I look good enough to eat. So I don't know if I don't take any pride in it. <laughs> but I will say that I don't buy into a lot of what people push that I'm oppressed behind it or be that I'm better than anybody because of it. You know, when I hear these elites, people like Nicole Hannah-Jones or the Ibram Kennedys that talk about skin color, skin color, skin color. To me, it's like a pyramid scheme because they don't even buy into the foolishness. They are the ones going out here getting $20,000, $25,000 to tell other black people that they have to feel a certain way because they're black. So I think they don't even feel that guilty about it because they're benefiting from it. They're clocking all the money behind it. And it's only the people at the top that's actually pushing that narrative is really benefiting from it. They're the only ones. Everybody that's buying into that foolishness is being held back because you actually believe that stupidity. You actually believe that because of the color of your skin, someone is going to hold you down. And I hear so many people talk about prison. You know, my uh, sympathy for black men that have gone to prison is very limited simply because my ex-husband spent six years in prison, came out and had a successful business. Now he has multiple successful businesses. We have a friend who actually learned how to bake in prison. Now he has a very successful bakery. Like if you come out and you actually believe in yourself and you stop the BS, Stop the whole, the white man looked at me a certain way when I went into court. Maybe because your pants were around your thighs, you idiot. Oh, the police, you know, he didn't treat me right. Were you speeding? Were you smoking weed and he smelled it and he stopped you? And it's it's just, it's, it's frustrating for me, the excuses that we have to not be successful. Sometimes I think we are afraid of being successful. There's that fear of succeeding because if you succeed, then you will have people who did not succeed looking at you as if you think you're better than simply because you're not walking around saying a bunch of foolishness, you know, like I'm black and I'm proud or, you know, I got to come against white supremacy. I don't think white people wake up every day trying to figure out how to hold Shamika Michelle back. But who can hold me back is me, my own thought process, because thoughts become things. So if people actually change the way that they think and carry themselves, because listen, when you think more highly of yourself, you carry yourself differently. Because I think more highly of myself, you're not going to catch me twerking in a restaurant. You're not going to catch me being loud and unruly and obnoxious. I'm just not going to do that because I think more highly of myself. And I do feel like the only person that can stop me is me. You have to remember, Jason, I was born to a woman who was 15. 
I have a friend who just wrote a book and I actually talked to her a couple of days ago. She thought I was calling because she put us in the book and I hadn't even read the book yet, but she was just saying how my mom introduced her to things she would have never experienced. And her parents were older. And she said she looked at me as if I lacked nothing. Now, there were times my soles were flapping off the bottom of my shoe. There were times we had macaroni and cheese and green beans for dinner. And I would say, Grandma, where's the meat? And she would say, the cheese is the meat. But this young woman felt like I lacked nothing. It would be a slap in my mother's face if I went out here and took on this whole oppression narrative, this Negro narrative, as if I couldn't do anything because of my skin color. When I have people looking at me that felt like I lacked nothing. My skin color didn't keep me from doing anything. Being a woman didn't keep me from doing anything. It's me. Anything I haven't accomplished is because of me. And until we start taking accountability as people, we're going to take the easy road to say, oh, you know, it's because I'm black. I hate that. And that's one of the reasons I've never liked Sean King. Sean King rose to prominence, like you said, on the grave of people like, um, you know, um, what was the little boy? Michael Brown. Michael Brown, the whole, the Tamir Rice, he rose to prominence standing on their graves. I do not like people like that. So I am hoping we're coming to the end of Sean King because I just think it's as a travesty how many black people buy into that, knowing you can look at this man and know he has never suffered the type of racial discrimination that he claims he has. There's no reason for him to be a black activist. I went to school. Now, listen, whether he's black or white, again, I don't care. Even if Delano wants to think maybe he looks mixed race, I went to school with mixed race people. They were always looked at as the best thing since white bread, not sliced bread, white bread. They had a certain privilege. So I just never really taken to the Sean Kings, the Nicole Hannah Jones, the Colin Kaepernick, like miss me with all of this. My life was so hard. I'm a dark skinned black woman. My hair is natural. Life hasn't been that hard for me. So you're not going to get me to buy into that foolishness. I just won't. The last thing, I've lived long enough that I'm not even sure. I certainly don't believe in systemic racism. What I believe unfairness is systemic and mm-hmm. unfairness can be delivered by anyone. I, I've had just as many white people do me wrong as I've had black people do me wrong. I've had just as many black people do me wrong as I've had white people do me wrong. It, it, it's, and I think that's the case for anybody that, uh, has spent time around both racial groups. And so unfairness doesn't have a skin color. It, it has a lack of ethics attached to it that anybody is capable of. And, and I could sit here, well, well, I could tell you this story about how 
Some people at OutKick lied to me. Well, I can tell you a story about how some people at some black business people lied to me or whatever. I can go story for story, any direction you want to go. And I think that's the experience of most people or they just haven't lived long enough or haven't had enough integrated experiences where it's, it's just unfairness. And, and people either have ethics or they don't have ethics. People either have a set of values that they stick to or they don't. And there is no skin color that that's specific to. There, there's just lack of character and ethics in this world. And, and to try to say one group has a lock on that is racist and it's inaccurate. You know, I do think there are remnants of systems that were put in place to oppress people, remnants. Um, but I don't think that we have what we actually push today as this systemic racism across the board. I think as you're, you're saying, there are bad people of every color, period. And of course, there are people that sit in high positions that may be racist, but there could be people working at Burger King that are racist. I don't think it is to the point that people buy into as if this is 1950 or 1930. I just don't believe that anymore. And so I do feel like people would do better if they looked at a person um, according to how they treated them. Because for me, I don't care what color you are. I am going to treat you the way I desire to be treated. Now, if you act a different way, you're going to get the getting, because I'm going to give it to you regardless of what color you are. But I don't approach people as if they're white and they're going to be against me. And I think that that's what a lot of people do. And they get angry at someone like myself, someone like you that don't approach situations that way. I'm just not that person. I give everybody a fair chance. If you cross me, you cross me. And I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But I don't look at people according into skin color and expect them to uh, not like me or to treat me wrong or to think that I'm less than. That's one of the things that I appreciate about conservatives because I feel like more often than not, they look at me like they expect they're equal. They expect me to be capable. They expect me to be smart. They expect me to be able to communicate and to carry myself with decency. I've never run into a conservative that thinks, oh, she's black. This is about to be a mess. And that's what people get so angry at conservatives for, because they actually look at black people like you can achieve. When you look at the people that are saying we need to get rid of this test or this standard for these kids, oh, they can't read, or we need to get rid of homework. All of them are white liberals, but yet these are the people that black people think are their, their friends. They're not your friends if they don't think you can succeed. If you have a dog and you take that dog into somewhere to be trained, when you come back to pick that dog up, you expect that dog to be able to, to sit, to fetch, to roll over, yet black people buy into the narrative that we can't 
do the same. So you think that I'm supposed to buy into this Negro narrative that a dog can be trained? but I can't grow up and actually achieve things and know how to carry myself or conduct myself in America. You see black people that will intentionally tear up the English, English language as if they are coming against uh, white oppression or white, I mean, you know, white supremacy. You look stupid tearing up the English language like that simply because you think you're taking a stand against white supremacy. No, you look like you couldn't learn the basic English when you were in school like you're stupid. Yet we have animals that can do tricks, but black people, you can't write a sentence you can't spell it. It bothers me. And I'm getting to the point, Jason, where my I feel like eventually I'm going to be real offensive because I'm just so sick of women uh, looking to, to, to be pavement apes. That's what we're seeing now. Our kids not knowing how to carry themselves, looking like a bunch of ratchetangs, like they are just so happy with with the degeneracy and the, um, you know, not being able to follow rules and laws, always talking back, not knowing how to carry themselves. I know I'm going to come under fire because I'm, I'm just starting to get real, real impatient behind the BS that we keep pushing and shoving down the throats of those coming behind us. I refuse to let my children feel like they are victims and to take this mentality. I wish one of my daughters would act the way I see some of these black women acting, twerking, hanging out of cars, bending over at police. I would smack the black off of them so they wouldn't even be able to use their race as an excuse. <laughs> I, I just y'all gone. <laughs> Thank you, Shamika. Uh, great job as always. Uh, we'll see you later this week. Uh, we're gonna switch it up and bring in the Korean co-sell Steve Kim. X. Warren Sapp, previously on Fearless. And then the milk check beside him in 55. Come on, let's stop this. Let's stop this. Let's really take a good look at your Cowboys and evaluate it without the, you know, the Dak Prescott hate. Because Troy Aikman wasn't that great of a quarterback. My quarterback, Brad Johnson, has more throwing touchdowns than him. Stop so it, stop. Warren. Stop it. Stop it, what? Warren. What? What? Aikman, Aikman what? was on a complete offense with a running game and an offensive line. Troy Aikman could have put up numbers. Troy, Troy Aikman could have. Could have shoot a water? Yes, That's what you're telling me? That, he that didn't have to. He won three so Super you're telling, Bowls. So you're telling me Jimmy Johnson, one of the greatest coaches, Hall of Fame coach, had a 40, 50,000, 300 touchdown passing quarterback, and he didn't take advantage of it? He let Vinny yes, Testaverde throw the air out. He won three ball. Super Bowls. He let, he let Vinny Testaverde throw the air out the ball in that Fiesta Bowl with five picks in the Penn State game. But he had Troy Aikman, the blue-eyed wonder, and he he wouldn't let him throw. Yeah.
All right, welcome back. Uh, time for some Steve Kim, some Korean Cosell to top off today's show. Steve, uh, I want to play you a clip <laughs> of Stephen A. Smith uh, issuing another warning to me. I don't know. Yeah, I think we talked about this last week when Stephen A. Smith called me fat bastard. He's back at it again, issuing another warning. I want you to help me uh, dissect what's going on here. Uh, let's play the clip of uh, Stephen A. Smith. When you know how to conduct yourself, you generate revenue. When you generate revenue, you position yourself for more other opportunities. When you flourish, your team flourishes, especially if you're any kind of decent person who is a giver, which I am. And so those are the kind of things that I'm talking about. I see Steph Curry and LeBron James, and then I think about the stuff that they get themselves into. And you know what I discover? Nothing. They don't get themselves into stuff. They don't. So I guess that would mean when I go at uh, Marcellus Wiley, I might not need to do that. When I go at a Dan Levitard, I might not need to do that. When some other colleague get on my nerves, I might not need to go too far. I might not need to respond to the Kwame Browns of the world and stuff like that. I might not need to respond to every little thing. Now, that person I call the fat bastard is the exception. That I'm not backing up from. That fat bastard, I'm just waiting for the moment where he gets my mind in the right place where I want to go nuclear on him. And at that particular moment in time, endorsement companies and potential endorsement deals and advertisers and sponsors and employers like ESPN or anybody that I'm doing business with down the pike, I would ask them to step aside and grant me this one Melican where I unleash on his sorry, no good ass. That is the only time that I will ask for that. Any other time, I will do my best to control myself and to reel myself in. Because the bottom line is, when you're doing business, it ain't good business to make bad business. On behalf of myself and my team, it's just not the wise thing to do. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that's Stephen A. Smith. I do want to translate. I believe he said to be granted a mulligan. I think he called it a melligan, uh, but I think he meant to say mulligan. Uh, that's a golf term when you get a second shot. Anyway, take it a mulligan. He screwed that up. But other than that, I, I have a take on this, Cosell, but I want to hear your take uh, before I give my take. Well, I mean, I'm going to start calling you psoriasis because you've certainly gotten under his skin. I mean, my God. Uh, <laughs> hey, by the way, Beyonce A. Smith, say his name, say his name. I, I don't get this. Just say the name, Jason Whitlock. A and I get it. You don't have to like each other. You don't have to like him. But I this whole declaration that I'm going to go to war and I'm going to put aside things. Oh, shove it. Either you're going to do it or you don't that this isn't really all that important. And Stephen A. Smith is trying to pick his battles. Either you are insulted when people come after you um, and you go after everyone, or, or maybe there's also an argument that, you know, certain people get certain special treatment, but there's no doubt about it, Jason, something about what you've said and the way you've done it, maybe the truth hurts. And I'm actually interested to see 
when he quote unquote hits that red button and goes nuclear, what is it exactly is he going to say? And the one thing I've learned about you, Jason, you are like a turtle. You have a tough shell because I know this when I retweet you, the reactions that you get and your ability just to let it not even impact you in any way or to react much more calmly or rationally than I would, or just to flat out ignore it, I know this is much greater than what he can do in terms of taking back the blowback. So Stephen A. Smith's doing a lot of barking, which is fine. He's already thrown a salvo or two. But I I do wonder, does he realize these things can go both ways? I wonder that as well. He's doing some caping up here, I think, for Shannon Sharp, uh, because in my previous comments when they were trying to smear the reputation of uh, certain executives at Fox, you know, I said, hey, be careful or I'm going to expose it all uh, as it relates to Shannon Sharp. And so Stephen A. is is caping up for Shannon Sharp, probably doing a little caping up for Deion Sanders as well. Uh, There's a part, if you go listen to the, we didn't play the full context because I didn't want to spend that much time giving the full context of what Stephen A., but he talked a lot about people that work for him. He called out specific names of people that work for him. And and then, you know, he said he's got to take care of them. And so he's kind of justifying the way he operates, the way that he, picks and chooses his battles, the, the, re- the reason he only takes certain positions and plays the game, he's doing this to sacrifice for all these people who count on him. And so there's a game that has to be played. So that's going to be part of his overall narrative. And then, quite frankly, uh, Steve, it's, it's crystal clear uh, that a former employee of mine, <coughs> Uncle Jimmy, uh, is, has, has found a new uh, uh, shoulder to cry on. Uh, he's, he's turned away from Curtis Scorned and now has started crying on Stephen A. Smith's shoulder, <coughs> Uncle Jimmy. Uh, and so wh- what I would say is that, you know, everybody here, Shannon Sharp needs to be careful Stephen A. needs to be careful. <clears throat> Uncle Jimmy needs to be careful because <sighs> there's always two sides to every story. And, and they're really barking up the wrong tree. Um, and so what, what I, I'm going to say this and irritate people, uh, but that's just what I do. I'm going to invite <clears throat> Uncle Jimmy Onto this show. If there's anything he wants oh. to air out, oh boy, love to have him here on this show. I, I also want to make it clear to <clears throat> Uncle Jimmy that if you want to go on Stephen A. Smith's show and say anything, please do. I will not hold it against you. I will not. Uh, there will be no lawsuit. Whatever this NDA that you're talking about that you, you're telling everybody you had to sign, I, please ignore that. Get it off your chest, with your chest out as boldly as you'd like to. Please do. But just understand that by doing it, go on Stephen A. Smith show, come on this show. But just allow me to uh, explain my side of the story. 
And, and so if we're all good with that, I'm certainly all good with you saying whatever you like to anybody. You don't have to just go whine on Curtis Scorn's pillow. You can, you can go on Stephen A. Smith's show and, and say it with your chest out. Stephen A., have him on. I would love it. I would love it. Then tune in and listen to my explanation. And we'll see. We'll let the chips fall where they may. So uh, that's you know, all I would say. Uh, Jason, I, I just checked my phone for yeah. the Google Maps. You know where we are on this Monday? There. Because you just went <laughs> there. I was like, okay, arriving. Oh, we arrived about two minutes ago. Okay, we're there. <laughs> I mean, I, here's the other thing. Going back to Stephen A. Smith. There's no doubt that he, yeah. he's not only pandering, but he's martyring himself because he understands that lobbing grenades at you makes him popular to certain segments of social media and Twitter. Let's just be honest about it. And so he knows what he's doing. He's trying to gerrymander his own public opinion and approval ratings. So it, it is what it is. But I, I would say to Stephen A. Smith, if you are ready to get down into a phone booth and battle, you better understand that the rules of engagement, they're not what you make it. Oftentimes is what the other person makes it. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave it there. I've gotten myself into a, enough trouble. Yes, but anybody too. else, anybody else, that, that, that invitation extends to anybody else. If you happen to have uh, gone to my high school and, and I gave you the benefit of granting you a job and you have something you want to say, please air it all out. Air it all out. Because uh, <laughs> I have zero problem with transparency. So I'll just leave it at that. We'll play tomorrow, tomorrow, and we'll see you tomorrow.